Hi, I'm Steve Byfield. Welcome to the Memoirs of Karate Fighter podcast. I'm here with author Ralph Robb, who wrote Memoirs of a Karate Fighter, and Donald Blaney, who was the original publisher of the book following a publishing career going back 20 years, as well as being a member of the YMCA team. I've been training for nearly 50 years, starting with judo age 10, and I'm an old boy of the Suzuki schools of karate at the Hombu, or headquarters dojo, at Manor Place Bars and Marvick House in London. Memoirs of a Karate Fighter is in my top five books of all time, and I can recommend it to anyone, whether they practice karate or not. Here's Kimberly Rivando Rob with a synopsis. Memoirs of a Karate Fighter by Ralph Robb Swept along by the kung fu craze of the 1970s, as well as the threat of violence from his older cousins and racist thugs, the teenage Ralph Robb joins one of the most successful and toughest karate schools in Britain. Although he grows up in a comfortable and loving home in middle-class area of Wolverhampton, England, Ralph strikes out for independence and moves to a flat in a high-rise tower block where a gang of National Front-supporting skinheads are in residence. In this coming-of-age tale, Ralph tells it how it was for a young black boy as he gradually matures into adulthood in a town where, back in the 1980s, casual racism and violence were all too common. Together with his cousin and best friend Clinton, he trains diligently and is selected to represent Britain at the Under-21 European Karate Championship. But as the jingoism grows to fever pitch in the throes of the Falklands War, Ralph finds himself conflicted. He wants to compete at an international level, but he does not want to wear the emblem of the Union Jack, which has become, for him, a symbol of intolerance. Ralph does win a silver medal, but his aspirations as an international competitor are curtailed when he has to take on work as a nightclub doorman to earn extra money so he can make a deposit for a home for him and his new family. But this is not his only concern. His training partner, Clinton, begins to exhibit behavior that will eventually require him to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. After extremely rough justice is meted out to a notorious gang of football hooligans by members of the karate club following an unprovoked attack on one of Ralph's younger cousins, and the fights he's witnessed at the doors of the various nightclubs, he begins to question the direction in which his life is heading, as well as his own attitudes to violence. The more he is able to fight, the less inclined he is to do so, and Ralph decides to take another course one which will lead him to a higher qualifications as an engineer and a role in a management at a factory in which he had once served as an apprentice. Following several years as Britain's top team, the karate club begins its slide into decline and members start to fall away. But they do meet up for one last time at the funeral of Clinton following his suicide at the age of 23. The death of his lifelong friend brings about another period of introspection, which will lead Ralph to leave karate and Wolverhampton behind for a new life in Canada with his wife and children. In your opinion, how are tournaments of the 70s and 80s different from today? Okay, good question. I can't answer for how karate is today at this moment because I've been out of karate for the last 30 years. But I could answer how it was when I first started. Now, when we first started karate as such, there was no mandatory having to wear mitts or shin pads. It was completely arbitrary. So very often, the very first competition we went into, it was just a bare knuckle thing. No mouth guard, no uh, cop or jock strap. We just went in, karate suit, as we were 
justified. Now, there's also other little things as well which you take for granted as well, such as uh, today's the level of uh, safety and security in regarding to the, the, the competition competitors themselves. They've got nice soft flooring. They've got nice cushioned mitts. You can't hit too hard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Back in the day, there was no such thing as cushion floor. Very often, the floors themselves, right, were just polished uh, school halls or town halls, community center floors. The area would be mapped out with tape, which would just be stretched across the floor, and two pieces of tape just to keep the correct distance in between the fighters before they actually start. Now, very often, the floor was that slippy. The tape wouldn't even stick. It was peeling off, and sometimes the ref just had to peel it up and get rid of it because it was becoming a liability. And also, we used to have to wet a, a towel or a rag of some description just to wet your feet before you went onto the fire area, just to give you some traction, or else you'd be all over the fit, all over the place. It might not sound like anything big today, but just those few little things, right, change the way you fought. For instance, the floor being so slippy, you couldn't have a, a great big wide stance. You couldn't be bouncing around on the floor, similar to what they do today. Your stance had to become a lot shorter. You become a lot more static. You had to rely on counterpunching rather than attacking or kicking. Because you could imagine you're trying to kick on an ice ring. You're going to go. You're going to go flying. Yeah, I think the worst place we ever fought in was Crystal Palace. Absolutely hated it before they introduced the, the, the tatame, as they call them, the mats. And I remember one year somebody was actually getting scouring powder out, like Ajax scouring powder, and sprinkling it around and yes. trying. It was so diabolical. The first few fights were absolute murder. And we tried all sorts. Some people thought the water thing made it more slippy. Over the years, you got to acclimatize that. I mean, the first thing we got for, what, what was the floor like? You know, but if you went to, say, tournaments like at uh, Chester or the SKI Championships, they normally had a, a, a matted area, but it was a canvas pulled over the mat. And you had to be yeah. very careful about how you landed. You could actually trip yourself over, hurt yourself quite badly on them. So it was quite rudimentary in those days. But of course, we look back now. I mean, there was a lot of good people trying to organize. It was like trying to herd cats, you know. Because very few people turned up on time. Then there'd be late entries. Yeah. And thankfully, there were a few good organizers around. And UKKW eventually got some brilliant family called the Generous. And they were brilliant organizers. Yeah, they were. And I always, my, my heart sort of lifted when I saw them around. God bless Margaret, Ken, when they were around. Mm. And Suzanne. Suzanne was brilliant. And they were first class. And there were, there were other people. But um, until they got involved, sometimes it was just bedlam. They'd say 10 o'clock in the morning, start. Half past 12, we'd still be there waiting for the call for the first fight. Yeah. One other big thing as well, which I noticed uh, regarding to today's uh, competition, was the introduction of Sambon Committee as opposed to Ipon Committee. Okay, How that actually changed the fight. How, how it actually uh, changed how the techniques of the fight or how the fighter approached the fight. With the six, with the uh, three-point rule, right? You could actually go out there, you could actually experiment a little bit, you could relax a little bit, you could pull your partner out to see what he's got before you alter your fighting techniques to counter his. But with the one Ippon rule, you didn't do that. If you did that and you made a mistake and the guy caught and got Ippon, game over. Which is more realistic in regards to the origin of karate? Is it the point system? Uh, we got six, we could get theoretically got six Rosari, or is it the one leak, you down, end of match? Well, I think the latter. You yeah. think the latter? Yeah. yeah. The thing is about Shobu Ipon, I know lots of people disagree with this. When it changed to Shobu Samba, the quality of technique 
that scored was lesser. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, but Steve, don't you think that led to an, uh, a less entertaining fight? Both fighters would be more tense, more on guard, rather than free-flowing with techniques, etc. Not too far they being scored upon. I can understand yeah. that view. But for the audience who don't know much about karate, maybe yes. But for the karateka... No, I think the karate could, could understand the need to be cautious and appreciated seeing a really good quality Mawashi Gary yeah. Jodan rather yeah. than a contest of a lot of weight in, in any case yeah. and six yeah. Kiyakuzukis. Yeah, I understand. I'm with you. Don't get me wrong. Okay, but if you want to push karate in, in terms of uh, gaining acceptance into the Olympics and stuff, you have to go the early route where you have to split it up, you have to become more entertaining. And by doing that, you end up to the situation which we've got today, okay? Entertaining, very quick, is... but I don't think I've ever seen a guy drop to the punch the body today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think Ralph and I have discussed this over the years, and after seeing you know people who knew how to fight out on the road, it only lasted one. Bang, and the fight was over. Over, you know, and so in some way, Shobo Ipan reflected what really happened. He who hits first, hits hardest, wins. That's the truth. Yes, I want to see a return to Shobo Ipan. Well, you know, I know the thing about entertainment, but it's not always that. And the parallel is Olympic fencing. Now, anybody who fences knows that in a real fight, particularly with a deadly blade, real fights don't last that long. But everybody got carried away with the Errol Flynn swashbuckling affair, uh, sword fighting, and thought that was what fencing should be mm. and I think with uh, karate competitions there was this pressure to say well this isn't anything like what Bruce Lee does you know what was in people's minds with the choreographed affairs of kung fu films etc even John Wayne movies where there were barroom brawls I mean they bear no relation to a real fight but I just know from very early on even people that were very very good at Shobu Upon wanted changes to the rules and they said how can we make it more free-flowing and open and at one time it wasn't taken up there was this idea that in the case of a draw he who had scored first would be declared the winner it still wouldn't stop the jumping and waiting around and people being tentative but once you were scored on you know not only did you have to draw a level then you had to go and score again for you to get the win so it put the impetus on one of the competitors to start pushing the fight if he fell behind. Yeah. The other thing was, was, and I think they've introduced this now about passivity, a warning as you used to have in judo if you weren't you know, doing techniques. But saying that, I mean, he had many faults. And I think Eddie Cox said once, before people get carried away, karate competition is a contest, not a fight. And so if you're expecting it to be a fight, well, then you're going to be sadly let down. Okay. Olympic events have conspired to disrupt my preparations for the European Under-21 Championships. Although my overall physical condition remained good, I had received stitches above my eye courtesy of a punch during a particularly hard training session. Eddie Cox had told the class to divide into three groups of ten karateka, one of whom would stand ready in a fighting stance against a wall, while the other nine made a line and took turns to attack him. There could be no retreat, only movement to the side or forwards to meet the attack. When nine attacks were completed, the person at the front of the line would take his place against the wall. We would go round and round, sometimes having to act as a defender four or five times. 
It was an exhausting exercise for the defender, who was not allowed to rest, while those who were attacking were not only resting as they waited for their turn, but they were also scrutinizing the defender's tactics and then plotting a means to catch him out as they made their way to the front of the line. It was almost impossible not to take at least one hard blow during this exercise, and Trog took full advantage of me trying to regain my wind after taking a powerful kick to the stomach from Clinton, of all people. It had been a couple of weeks since his scare, and although he had been given a clean bill of health and was back to training, I was saddened but not surprised, when he told me that he would not be coming with me to the European Championships in London. I had got hit by two consecutive attacks, Clinton's kick and Trog's punch, but I still had to defend myself against another four before the change came, and I went to the back of the line. The sight of my blood seemed to spur on the Kratika in front of me. Their punches and kicks came faster and harder as they tried to take advantage of my weakened state, but I did not take it personally. They were only doing what they were trained to do. Sure, we all here understand what a real fight is all about. I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a minute, okay? Imagine ourselves, right, or yourself getting involved in a street fight and you had to pick uh, a guy, a karateka, to watch your back, okay? Who would you actually pick? Let's not be biased, let's not pick anybody from our own club, our own environment group, somebody on the outside, okay? Yeah, I know that's difficult, yeah. difficult question. Good question because you could only evaluate somebody by what you've seen of them at competitions and competition is not what happens in the street yeah. but at the same time it gives you some idea of the power the tenacity of a certain karateka in yeah. a competition and would you want him at your back to defend you when yeah. goes down it's a yeah. question two guys yeah. or three guys start off with you done what, Libby White. Oh, that's one of my... Libby White. One of my yeah, I'm years. sorry. I got in there first because I knew you were going to say he had one of the hardest punches I've ever come across in my life. And you just knew Libby just threw with any venom at all that that was the end of it. I agree. It really was. I mean, there, there's no there's no carrying on. Before you answer and, the second... Uh, sorry, before you answer the second question, right? As I said, Libby White was one of my karatekas as well. I remember yeah. once when I went... It came down to train this at the club. I had the... Uh, misfortune to spy with Livy. Now, Livy was so tough and rough. No matter what you did, right, you ended up hurting. If you punched and you blocked it, you're in pain. If it hits you, you're in pain. If it swept you, you're back. You swept him, you're in pain, okay? You're such a physical guy. No matter what you did, yeah, you came yeah. up feeling, you came up being worse. And he was yeah. only taking his time with me. Yeah. He was an exceptionally strong fight. Yeah. My second choice, we're looking at street fighting, and I, I only ever saw him on tape, but I'd heard so much about him, was Reberg of Holland, the Dutch fighter. Mm-hmm. I heard some tales about how he literally broke up some guys during the 70s with a front-hand punch, with a kick, Yakazuki. I mean, when he let it go, he, he just stopped the fight. And probably why he didn't win as much as he would have done, because he often he, he'd get disqualified. But I think there's a, a British guy called Brian Fitkin, and he broke his sternum. Oh, yeah. I remember, I think it was Tyrone White got hit by his front hand and he said he was a couple of days in bed over it and if we're talking about not competition we're talking about guys who you want behind your back you want somebody there who's going to just stop everything in one <laughs> not yeah. messing around getting people high rate and vexed by just hurting them you want them put away you know I think the famous Wado fight is Kotsubu. Okay. He was well-renowned. He was such a big man, but so amazingly fast and so powerful. And you'd feel everything, even when you were blocking. As I said, Steve, I think the no contact was a misnomer. It was controlled contact. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now the difference in those days. Okay, onto me. As I said, Livy White was one of mine. Let me let that one go because you stole him from me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A lot of mine, right, was uh, pick was chosen because as a kid, when I first started karate at the wire, even before I started competing, I used to tag along, right, to competitions just to see what they're all about. Now there was always a few guys I watched fight, and I thought, Jesus Christ, these guys are they're not quite right in the head. Now these yeah, are yeah, the guys yeah. I'd probably want to pick. One of the first ones after pick was John Morton okay yeah. that's the first guy I've seen those knees going in and his headbutts going <laughs> right and yes. weeps and they say he didn't hear the yabe right <laughs> That was John, yeah. That was John that was Martin, definitely. right? And he was, he was a tough old dude, and he'd give as, much, give as hard as anybody was willing to give. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have much opportunity to see him fight in the uh, upper echelons. I just remember the competitions fight. Yeah, yeah. Second yeah, one, yeah. it would have to be, you know, Wellington. Oh, yeah. Okay? He was a rough, 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 brutal, slightly sadistic fighter as well. Now, I wasn't yeah. at the competition at the time. I'm pretty sure uh, you'd have read about it, Don, if you weren't there yourself. When he got scored upon, and because of his temperament, oh. he followed up with a Kakazuki yeah. to his opponent's face and cracked his bubble yeah, to right. bone. Now, I'm not too sure who the guy was, but I'm sure you... I, I, I was there, Ralph. I was, was there, there. On the line, actually. That yeah, was, was uh, Mel Perry. Mel Perry, yeah. yeah. Horrible. Wellington got banned for a year over that. Oh, you um, reckon it was deliberately? Oh, yes. Everybody saw it because you could see Mel parried actually I remember he landed a kick that hit uh, Uno Wellington on the hip and it, it hurt. I have to say Mel Parry who is so crisp with his technique excellent technically and it hurts Uno and, and I remember saying to my brother you could just see Uno had a, this nickname Shaft everybody yeah. called him Shaft I don't yeah. know why he didn't look anything like Richard Roundtree oh, but anyway oh, yeah well I said I think he's going to hurt him now and I just remember he was coming to the line and literally Mel had gone down and thrown a punch as Uno was coming forward but Uno didn't care he, he just wanted to put this punch in. I remember hearing the crack. Even as I'm talking now, I replayed. It was an absolute horrible injury. That brings me on to my third fight. It would be Steve Babs. Oh, yeah. One of the reasons, because they did everything. They spread themselves around to learn as much as possible about the art of fighting. I, I, yeah. I, said, yeah. I was a bit young at the time. I seen him. He seemed to carry himself kind of respectably. He wasn't an egotistic sort of guy as far as I was concerned. I don't know personally. I'm just going by what I see. Okay, yeah. Stevie. Yeah. Well, it's a difficult one. I've got to mention John Walton. I remember him at the uh, Crystal Palace competitions as someone whose karate obviously worked and will certainly work on the street. But, you know, to the trained eye, you could see a lot of uh, kind of refined karate technique in there as well. But I think he had oh, yes. that quality that's required that he didn't fear anybody. Yeah. And he was that's going right. to defeat you with his aggression, regardless of what yeah. you did. Mm. So the other yeah. one I would want to mention is Terry O'Neill. Yes. Yeah. Having trained with him, yeah. uh, he was awesome. He was so strong and so technical. Yeah. He could kick you or punch you wherever he chose to. Yeah. Yeah. He was brilliant. And that was a scary thing to see for such a big, you know, heavily built man. You know, yeah. He had a reputation of being able to handle himself in the streets as well. He did the door work. When you, when you trained with yeah. him, there was absolutely no doubt yeah. about that whatsoever. And that's a good yeah. quality to have in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. General Neil was on my list, but I had not, I've never seen him fight. 
I've heard, I've heard yeah. a good reputation. I've read about him, such as uh, his, his involvement in the door work, etc. But I've never seen him fight, or else he would have been, definitely been on my list. So well, I, I mean, if you, I mean, the thing is, you kept it to three. Terry O'Neill would have been on my list, and, and another guy who I really liked, and unfortunately passed on, was Steve Cattle. What a guy! I mean, he had so much courage, and he was such an approachable man. I mean, a lot of karate history. One of my treasured moments. He gave me my last trophy I ever won up in the north somewhere. Shook my hand. Yeah. But my God, when he fought, you think oh, he can't be much of a fighter. He seems all the wrong shape and he was wearing glasses a lot of the time and things like that. And yet the man never took a step back. He was so courageous. So Terry O'Neill and Steve Cattle. Now my third person, that's Big Ray Coates. Ray Coates was one of Suzuki Sensei's earliest downgrades. I've heard the name, yeah. He was such a big man. He would just pick you up and slam you on the ground and that would be it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I was lucky enough to compete against the likes of John Morton. About neither of us would ever forget, as we both ended up being disqualified. I think it was the first double disqualification ever. <laughs> he was on a, a, a summer course competition. I accompanied Jerome Atkinson down to take his first down, which he passed. And they had one of the Tanabe brothers there from the Nichi Dai as a guest of honor, and they're going to have a competition. And I said, well, fair enough, I might as well throw my lot in. And who did it get drawn against the first round? But the esteemed John Morton. Now, John, for those who don't know, was a member of the World Championship winning squad in 1975. A very well-known karateka around the place and very well respected. But very well known for being slightly deaf when he came to the command Yame. We've been giving each other a little bit of stick for about a minute. And John, uh, true to form, kept following on after the referee had said Yame. So I thought, to heck with this now. If he does that again, I'm just going to put one on him. So uh, same thing did happen again. So I thought I will drop the nut on John, which is a mistake, because he then tried to drop the nut on me. <laughs> and then suddenly uh, we were throwing knees. Uh, we grabbed up one another and we were throwing knees and whatever. And um, four Japanese sensei jumped on me, it's fair enough, and wrestled me to the floor. And... But only one, as I remember, took hold of John. He may dispute that. He, he may say he took two to hold him back. And uh, Tatsu Suzuki was there, of course, uh, with the esteem Mr. Tanabe. I suppose he was supposed to say, this is an example of my students. So we, we, we got disqualified. So I, anyway, I went back to the dressing room and who walks in but John? Uh, here we go. So I readied myself to carry on what had been started. And fairness to John. He took, stuck out his hand. I was, I'm a lot younger than John. He says, well done, kid. You got bottle. That was it. Chucked my hand and off he went. I thought, thank God for that. <laughs> but we've had a few laughs about it since. There are several other names I could mention of different styles of who could have handled themselves very, very well. When I look at today's crop, and not even today's, I could go back to the early 2000s, and I never felt the same way about that. See, the people that we've just mentioned started training in a different time. I think the objectives of being of doing karate were different. Ralph and I have talked about when we first started karate, it was about looking after ourselves on the street. We didn't even know karate competition existed, so we didn't go to win medals or anything like that. It was to make ourselves better fighters or at least be better prepared out on the road. And I just think this has changed. 
As karate emerged from the 1970s, the tension between being a traditional karateka and a competitor had grown. I had read in one of Mick's magazines that Billy Higgins, a Shotokan instructor who had come second in the 1972 World Championships, reckoned that you could be a good karateka and not be a good competitor, but you could not be a good competitor without first being a good karateka. But as competition rules changed and it gradually became more about speed and touching an opponent rather than hitting him with a controlled strike, I was starting to understand Eddie Cox's view that the sporting side of karate was growing ever less relevant as a measure of how good a fighter you actually were. Let me ask you this. What constitutes a good karateka today? Obviously, it's not about just about your fighting ability. The guys who I know, who I would regard as good karatekas, right, are probably guys who would never shine in a tournament situation. I used to work with a guy called Mick Davis, okay? He came to train with us a couple of times. Now, Mick isn't the most natural gifted of fighters. He's very ordinary. But he lived his life as what I see a proper karateka would be like. If he had to fight, he would fight until he died, so to speak. Even though he may not be the best fighter there is, he's gonna do he's gonna do best he can until he died. He ain't gonna give up. And you understand what I'm trying to get at? Yes. Yeah. An old student um, contacted me last week, and he sent me a, a message, and he said um, there's little chance of finding a karateka with that old school ethos. I looked far and wide for one when my lads expressed an interest in the mid 2000s. I spent less than a few minutes in most I entered, and for those where I lasted longer, I was only met with disappointment at the watered-down version of what was being sold. That's directly from his message. So this was a guy he trained with me 30, 35 years ago. He's a good, very good student. I think he left and became a policeman, if I remember correctly. So he knew about having to be effective. And I didn't um, solicit this message. This is what he, he's found. I don't know if there's, there's not a good karate, Steve, or a bad karate. I mean, I went to a competition last year full of young people, and it was great to see them doing things and being fit and active. And there was a feeling of camaraderie that we used to have and that the idea of joint endeavor. And I thought, this is great. And there, there were people from all around the country and people that came over from Britain and there were sort of different cultures getting together. And that's all positive. So I'm never going to criticize that. I'm just saying what karate is today, the criteria has changed. All I'm saying is those who've had experience of the sort of karate we started in don't want to put their kids in there. They, they don't believe it anymore. I think a lot of young people who see karate as it's being trained today just don't believe it's an effective art. Society's changed as well as karate's changed. So I don't think karate would have survived anyway being taught as it was taught when we first started 50 years ago around that time because society's less willing to take on the sort of discomfort, for want of a better word, that we were prepared to put ourselves through. I agree with you for the most part. I think what constitutes a good karateka today, I'd like to think, are the same things that were required in the past. I think that nowadays people specialize more. Uh, you know, you get people that just practice kumite yeah. and, and they don't practice kata at all. Yeah. There's a solid group of people who see all of the other things like paired kata basics as unnecessary and don't want anything to do with that yeah ralph did you ever think 
about getting Jared to train in karate? No. He would have just laughed at it because he, yeah. he came from a, a wrestling background. And the wrestling training, right, Don, it's, you thought our training was hard? It's along the same yeah. lines. So he's not oh. going to go from that to his pitter-patter stuff, that, you know? No way. Yeah, karate does have failings. I mean, Tatsu Suzuki, who I admire greatly, did change a lot of his karate, even in the limited time I changed with him, because he was picking things up all the time, and he kind of was able to say, well, you know what, that's not going to work in that situation. The way we trained was as a direct result of how he formed Wadu Karate in Europe, Britain in particular, through his syllabus. His karate is a fighting karate. That's, that's first yeah, and exactly. foremost... That's why he exactly. wanted to... Yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And what we're getting around today, Steve, is something that is not centred around that. I'm so certain that if we'd gone back in a time machine and had MMA, a lot of the guys I've mentioned would have excelled at MMA. Do you think that it's better to do karate mixed with some MMA or Brazilian jiu-jitsu to be a more rounded fighter? Or uh, do you think would, that karate is my, enough for Because of my side? experience with MMA and my son having... Four professional fights, and I felt to train him through every step of those fights. I would say yes, because I could yeah. see the benefit of, of uh, the jujitsu's, especially the wrestling. There's nothing like wrestling, thank you for me, or the judos. You, you tend to underestimate these things, especially in the close thing you can't strike. Guy grabs yeah. you, that's the end of that, my friend. You know? <laughs> yeah. If he grabs you, he throws you, and you hit a concrete floor, that's it, you ain't carrying none again. Have but, you trained oh, with your son? I used to train with him very regularly, yes. I trained my son through all the, the uh, karate style of technique. He had to start from the very beginning. He had to throw Megari properly, Mawashigari. He did all the things properly before he had allowed him to move to the next stage. And then once he established the uh, correct way of doing things, he went into, like, Muay Thai, okay? He did a bit of kickboxing. He did boxing himself. Uh, his base was always wrestling because he wrestled throughout the United States. He was a very good wrestler. And so I took it upon myself to teach him the karate I knew, which I knew, which would be effective in MMA. I seen him drop guys with front kick, whereas Muay Thai teaches as a push kick just to separate you. He was dropping guys with front kick, which they couldn't believe. Nothing, what the hell is this kid doing? I just took what was successful, what I deemed successful in karate and manoeuvred it towards what he needed. Over the tannoy, one of the officials called for the coaches to submit the fighting orders of their teams. As I got to my feet, Eddie Cox beckoned me over to him and that pain in my gut came back again. I anticipated that he was about to tell me that I'd been relegated to the reserves of the second team because of the training sessions I had missed. Ralph, he said, you'll be fighting number three for the first team. The surprise left me barely able to talk. Do you think I'm ready? I mumbled as the first feelings of self-doubt crept in. Is Blaney injured or something? I had expected that Don Blaney would retain his place in the first team upon his return after a year in Ireland, especially when he had joined in with the fighting classes. But unknown to me, he had told Eddie that he no longer felt the urge to compete. He had boxed with some success while he was away and had become even more disillusioned with the changes in the rules of competition karate which further restricted the amount of contact a competitor could make. Along with many others, he was of the opinion that these alterations were diluting a combat system's effectiveness. Eddie Cox smiled. No, he replied. 
is an injured, he agrees with Jerome and Ewart that you're ready for the first team. Just do your best. And Clinton, I asked, he's going to be the first reserve. Okay. Okay, I mumbled, suppressing my ears to cheer out loud. This was the moment for which I had endured years of mental and physical discomfort. But there was no time for any celebration. Now I had to prove to myself and to others that I was worthy to line up alongside some of the best karate fighters in the country. Visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. If you have questions or comments, email us at ralph at ralphrob.com. I'm Kimberly Ravando Rob, and I am signing up. Signing up. Signing up.